This is an ABC podcast. Hey, Joe Lauder with you for the Hack Podcast. Now, Dave Marchese made it through the whole election campaign, but he's got COVID now, so I'm going to be hanging out with you all this week. The world of exorcisms, women being forced to march around, chanting their sins out loud and being hypnotised to cure being gay. It all seems medieval, but gay conversion therapy is still happening and legal in some parts of Australia. We find out on the show about the push to ban it in Tasmania. Plus, it's not just you. Stuff at the supermarket is getting smaller. It's known as shrinkflation, and we're going to find out why that's happening. Hack. We believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. I'm Triple J. It's been five years since Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders came together to make history. They released the Uluru Statement from the Heart that called for Indigenous Australians to have a voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution. That still hasn't happened, but in his victory speech on Saturday night, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, committed to pushing it forward in this next term of government, which means that for most of us, we're going to be heading to a referendum for the first time in our lives. To find out more, I'm joined by Linda Burney. She's a Labor MP, a Radjuri woman, and she's the incoming Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. Linda Burney, first up, congratulations on becoming the first female Indigenous Minister for Indigenous Australians. Thank you so much. It must also be incredibly exciting for you to see the number of uh, First Nations women that are coming into the new parliament. It's just remarkable. I mean, in the Labor caucus, when we meet... For the first time, there will be six First Nations people in the caucus. It's remarkable. Yeah, it's really exciting to see. Now, for people that might not know the detail, can you just start by telling us about the three main elements that were in the Uluru Statement from the Heart? Uh, The three elements are these. First of all, there is a request for a constitutionally enshrined voice in the Australian Constitution, and that requires a referendum to be held uh, to change the Australian Constitution. The other two things was the establishment of a Makarata Commission, which would have two jobs. The first job is to oversee a national process of truth-telling, and also the second job is to oversee a national agreement and treaty-making process which is very long and very complex. So they're the fundamental planks of Uluru. And what's really exciting is that many of the people listening this afternoon would never have voted in a referendum. So it'll be the first referendum that many people will vote in. Yeah, it'll definitely be my first one. And before we get into some more of the detail, how do you see this changing the country and the relationship between First Nations people and the rest of Australia? Well, just imagine what we would be as a nation if everyone knew the truth about the Australian story. Uh, It's not about apportioning guilt or blame. It's just about healing. It's about everyone understanding what the story has been in terms of the relationship between First Nations people and other people, what the importance of connection to country and language and family means. All of those things, we would just blossom as a nation The second thing is, if you can imagine 
there has never been a formal peace settlement between First Nations people and the rest of the country. And really that's what a treaty could achieve. And we have treaty processes already happening in Victoria, Northern Territory and Queensland. So that's, that's an important consideration as well. And the third element is an advisory body to the parliament. And this would mean an elected group of First Nations people would be in place to provide advice on policies, legislation and issues affecting directly the lives of First Nations people. Do you expect there'll be support from the new opposition, the Liberal and National parties, considering that they didn't act on this in the past five years, as you said? I have a real hope and desire that there is support. Of course, it's important to get a successful referendum up in Australia it's best if there's bipartisan support. So I hope that they can see their way to support what the Prime Minister said, a very generous and patient and elegant request. Uh, the crossbench will be important in terms of uh, liaising and talking and consulting, and of course so will the um, Greens and other independents. The view that I have in my role is about building consensus, assisting in uh, the educative process that will need to go on in relation to getting Australia ready for a referendum. I was going to say, not just bipartisan support, it seems incredibly important that there would be community support for this referendum as well before we go into it. Community support is absolutely important. Uh, you couldn't be more accurate. But I believe that this will appeal to the Australian sense of decency, the uh, Australian sense of fairness, like we saw in the 1967 referendum, which was to do with uh, including Aboriginal people in the census for the first time. Uh, there was an overwhelming vote because it was fair and it was the right thing to do. I know it's early days as well, but do you have any idea about when this referendum would happen and just how much work has to go in between now and then to make it possible? Well, there's an enormous amount of work. I mean, this is one of the things that the ALP has committed to. We have a raft of other measures that will address issues like housing, uh, violence, Aboriginal ranges, care for country, cleaner water, uh, health workers uh, and uh, and justice reinvestment. So all of those things uh, and are, are also to be worked on, including, including of course, uh, the Close the Gap targets. Uh, I think the most important thing is that we heed what the Prime Minister has said. His uh, desire is to have this in the first term of an Albanese government, and I hope that that can be achieved. And you mentioned before that the third element of the Uluru Statement is a treaty. Would that happen alongside this process and also alongside a Makarata, or would that be something that would come afterwards? Uh, look, the sequencing is something that I want to talk to the Prime Minister about um, and get his views. But 
we've got to be very clear that uh, treaty making is a long, complex and slow process. And we look at contemporary examples of that in places like um, British Columbia, Even where it took, it took 13 years for uh, the treaty to be negotiated there. So the sequencing, the timing um, is something that we will work through and come to a conclusion uh, quickly on. Yeah, it's an incredibly exciting step forward for the country and also a very busy few years ahead of you. So, Linda Burney, thank, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us in your first week in the role. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Hack on Triple J. That's the incoming Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Linda Burney. On the text line, um, Ben Imbrizi says, why does there even need to be a referendum for this? If the government supports it, can't they just put it through? Or does constitutional change require a referendum? Ben, yeah, you, if you're going to change the constitution, you have to go to a referendum, which is why we'll have that in the next few years. And someone else says, so good to finally hear these conversations coming forward and action being taken. Hack. Transgender people know who they are. We don't need to be told and coached how to be someone else. We need to be supported and being ourselves. On Triple J. A cross between the army, a psych ward and a convent. That's how one person described their experience at a religious gay conversion therapy centre where she was forced to march around every morning yelling out her sins about being gay. It sounds like something out of The Handmaid's Tale, but this is happening here in Australia. Gay conversion therapy has been made illegal in three states so far, and now there are calls to ban it in Tasmania. ABC reporter April McLennan brings us this story. I was doomed to be this queer for the rest of my life, so I didn't want to live. I would rather have not existed than to be alive and to be queer. And sadly, that's the reality for most of us that go through this barbaric treatment. That's Irene Harias. She grew up in southern Tassie and she's a survivor of conversion practices. By the time she was 21, she'd gone through five exorcisms, some lasting multiple days. They were trying to expel a particular demon, Irene's homosexuality. Basically, I was told that I had uh, demons inside of me, the spirits of uh, lesbianism, which I think would make an amazing name for a rock band, um, but that I, I, was, I had Satan in me, basically. So the exorcisms were to cast these demons out. Of course, there was nothing wrong with me at all. I just happened to have same-sex attraction. So, yeah, pretty, pretty extreme beliefs there. But, I, I, you know... I didn't want to be gay, so I, of course I went along with it. Conversion practices are designed to suppress or wipe out a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. The practices range from prayer to counselling to complete intervention. And it's based on the false idea that people can be made heterosexual. After going through years of these failed practices, Irene was shipped off to a place called Mercy Ministries in Queensland. For nine months, I was isolated in a place where same-sex attraction was treated as though it was a mental illness. My treatment was to get God in and gay out. On its website, it said it treated women aged 16 to 28 by providing homes and care for young women suffering the effects of eating disorders, self-harm, abuse, depression, unplanned pregnancies and other life-controlling issues. 
The controversial counselling program that was linked to the Hillsong Church has actually been shut down due to bad publicity and an ACCC investigation. They made us march around the perimeter of the property every morning, confessing out loud our sins and all the evil that we'd let into our lives. They made us believe that we had actually chosen to be gay and it was a direct result of our fathers not hugging us enough when we were little or listening to too much KD Lang in the 90s. Conversion practices have actually been banned in many countries all around the world. In Australia, Queensland, the ACT and Victoria have passed laws prohibiting it. Western Australia and South Australia have promised to, but they're yet to actually start this process. In Tassie, conversion practices are being reviewed by the Tasmanian Law Reform and it's proposing big legal changes, saying there's plenty of evidence that conversion treatment leads to anxiety, depression, substance abuse and suicide. Here's equality activist Rodney Croom. If we delay on enacting a ban on conversion practices in Tasmania, the danger we face is that we become a haven for uh, these kinds of practices with people being sent here from interstate. Now, I already know from speaking to some survivors that they were sent to Tasmania to undergo conversion practices in particular parts of the state. A Tasmanian survey found 5% of the LGBTQIA plus community had actually undergone conversion practices and 97% of all respondents had been told their sexuality or gender identity was the result of abuse or trauma and that it needed to be fixed. When survivors tell me about some of the things they've gone through, including exorcisms, including being sent off to camps interstate where they're basically treated like prisoners, my first feeling is that we as a society have failed them. We have failed to protect them. We've failed to uphold their basic dignity as human beings. So will it happen in Tasmania? Well, some say we shouldn't even consider it. I I do have some issues with the, the idea that people can't change also that we as Christians who believe that people can change would be legally prohibited, in fact criminally prohibited, from even praying for someone who requests prayer to change. That's Andrew Corbett. He's a Christian pastor in Tassie. Andrew doesn't think we should ban conversion practices, but he says his church condemns physical and psychological abuse or emotional manipulation. I would find this utterly bewildering if praying for someone was equated to the same level of abuse as deprivation and torture, which is some of the other examples on the extreme archaic end of conversion therapy. That would be utterly bewildering to me. The Tasmanian Law Reform Institute has recommended 16 changes to the state's laws. But for Irene, she'll continue to campaign until conversion practices stop and she hopes the state government follows through. I'm shocked that this is still happening in my lifetime. It it belongs in the dark ages. I mean, just wanting to end your life because of something that you can't control, something you didn't ask for, that's... No one should have to go through that. Your sexuality or or gender identity should be as important as your eye colour. It doesn't matter. Hack on Triple J. That's April McLennan reporting. And there was some heavy stuff in that story. And if it has brought up any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Q Life on 1800 184 527. Liz on the text line says, conversion therapy is disgusting. It's beyond disgusting. I don't even know why it's still legal. And I'm so angry to think that this is still happening. 
Anna Brown is the CEO of Equality Australia and she joins me now. Thanks for coming on, Anna. Um, just to start with, how did you feel hearing those stories? Oh, every it was really quite shocking um, and deeply disturbing to hear those first-hand accounts of these sorts of practices still happening uh, in Tasmanian, indeed, across Australia. I mean, sadly, I'm not surprised because I know... Um, I know, I know um, from speaking to other people and, and in other campaigns across the country that this does take place, but it, it never takes away from that that shock of hearing those um, those accounts. It's it's really truly disturbing and distressing. And what kind of impact would that have on someone? Would you say? I think um, there's a, prof- a profoundly harmful impact, and um, there's no there's now um, clear evidence both in this, this um, landmark Tasmanian report, but also um, from research conducted by La Trobe University and others about how this this causes profound harm to to individuals. The message that something about, something inherent to, to who you are makes you broken or disordered is um, causes people to literally tear themselves apart. And, uh, you know, sometimes people become their own worst enemy and they seek out a cure because they believe something about them is wrong and and that's just so it just shouldn't be happening um Mm. and we need um the sorts of laws that you were speaking about but also research and education so that uh, these faith communities can change from within to support uh, the lgbtq people within them yeah and just on that um those moves to ban this how difficult is it to define what gay conversion therapy is in legislation because i imagine a lot of the time it's passed off as like religious guidance or counseling or support yeah how do you legislate that well i mean the good news is we've had a couple of jurisdictions already legislate on this topic so we've got some really clear models in uh, ACT in Victoria and, and in Queensland when it comes to health um, practitioners. Uh, so so it's, um, and, and I think the Victorian model um, in particular is a really good example of how you can um, make sure that you have criminal penalties for when there's um, clear injury that's caused, but also a really strong civil regime so that when someone um, experiences these sorts of practices, they can make a complaint and they have redress. Uh, I think what we saw in Victoria when this bill was going through was that the Australian Christian lobby um, had a campaign of misinformation about what the law actually did. And I heard a bit of that in the in the interview just then. Um, it's very clear that the law um, criminalises injury and serious injury. And uh, those are already existing offences uh, under Victorian law, if you're talking about Victoria. Um, and so there's the jurisdictions have really carefully navigated and developed uh, very clear models that that actually do this uh, properly. And right, with, made, without impinging on someone's right to religious freedom, I imagine that would be an issue for some people. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the you know, and the Tasmanian report um, really provides that roadmap as well. In Tasmania, it's got you know, very careful recommendations about how to take this, how to take this forward and balance, um, you know, and, you know, let's just not, I think overwhelmingly, we just have to think about the harm that this is, that this causes people and make sure that we're protecting people um, um, from that, that sort of profound harm. 
Yeah, and we've got a new government this week and in the past, Labor has talked about outlawing this. Would you like to see that kind of national ban be introduced? Yeah, there's no question that leadership from uh, the federal government would be really welcome in this area. Uh, And of course, it's not just laws. We need uh, we need sustained measures to support cultural change, like education and training, and um, uh, you know interventions at, within those faith communities uh, to support that cultural change from within. And that's exactly what the federal government could be doing: is working with the states and territories to um, have a coordinated response to make sure that in every setting, whether it's a health setting, which, I mean, shockingly, there's still evidence of this taking place. Um, from what I've read in, in some in health from you know qualified health practitioners, but also what appears to be the, the more prevalent um, practice, which is informal uh, religious settings and uh, people um, being exposed to these sorts of practices mm-hmm. there. So making sure that there's you know work happening across the country and being led nationally by our new federal government and parliament to make sure that a multifaceted approach is taken to ending these practices once and for all. And just lastly, would you say that this would still be happening in states that have passed legislation to ban it? Because I imagine um, there would be concerns that legal um, making it illegal just pushes it underground. Yeah, I think that's why um, in states like Victoria and the ACT, and I, I understand Queensland as well, there's there needs to be um, other measures as well as the law and there's a lot of education going on in Victoria, uh, a lot of uh, discussion with the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission and uh, education and faith communities about what the law does and doesn't do Um, because, like I said, there was a bit of a campaign of misinformation around um, that the Christian lobby led at the time Um, and and making sure that, that there's a clear message sent, I think, by the by the parliament when it passes the law, and that's incredibly important, but that also, um, that we, you know, we actually change hearts and minds as well and, and pers- you know, that people within faith communities understand the harm they're causing because, I mean, mm. maybe I'm optimistic, but I'd like to think that if uh, many people in these faith communities actually understood the harm they were causing to people, they think they're doing the right thing. They think they're helping or, you know, quotation marks, healing, but actually if they understood the the incredible damage they were causing, then they would, they would yeah. change um, what they were doing. Anna Brown, for the CEO of Equality Australia, thank you so much for joining us and talking about that. Thanks for having me on. That was Anna Brown, the CEO of Equality Australia. Hack, it's the sneaky way food giants get you to pay more without realising. On Triple J. If you've just switched on, I'm Joe Lauder and I'm filling in for Hack on Hack all this week because Dave Marchese unfortunately has COVID. Now, I reckon we've all been in this situation recently where you're at the supermarket and you go to buy something and it seems heaps smaller than you remember. I'm talking about things like blocks of chocolate or cereal or even ready-made meals. I know this makes me sound a bit like a boomer being like, things used to be so much bigger, but it's actually a real thing. It's called shrinkflation and it's been happening in the US for a while now and now shoppers are noticing it here as well in Australia. And if you've noticed this, let me know on 0439 757 Now, to find out more, I've got Gary Mortimer with me. He's a professor of marketing and consumer behaviour at the Queensland University of Technology. Gary, thanks for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure, Joe. It's great to chat. 
Now, shrinkflation sounds like an absolute made-up word. Can you just explain <laughs> what it is to start with? Yeah, listen, it is. It, it is a made-up word. Us marketers love making up words. Ultimately, <laughs> it's it's simply a, a, a contents reduction strategy. So, you know, if you're a manufacturer, you're facing input costs that are going up. So, you know, a coca for chocolate, grains, uh, that type of thing. Maybe you're in, you're facing uh, you know, utilities costs, electricity costs. Uh, logistics costs going up. Um, ultimately, you've got two choices. I'm going to put the cost up, therefore I'm going to charge customers more, uh, or I'll put less in the pack and I'll charge the same. And that's shrinkflation. This is really embarrassing and I'm going to out myself here, but the other day I um, was eating some Pringles and I got my hand stuck in the tube and I was convinced that like this, my hand hasn't got bigger. This has never happened before. And I feel like that is an example of it, right? Where they've just shrunk it without really telling us. Well, I guess uh, no brand manufacturer is going to come out and say, hey, look, here's the new downsized, smaller version of what you bought last week. Uh, naturally, they'll obviously relabel the, the packaging with the correct grammage or the weight or the literage. So that's obviously a legal, uh, a legal term. But obviously, it, it's less than what we actually notice. And, and I'm sure your listeners would remember um, packets of chips that were normally about 250 grams and they went down to 200 grams. Now they're about 175 grams. A particular block of chocolate was always about a 250 gram family block. Then it went down to 200 grams, and it went down to a dollar 180. Uh, Tim Tams, another example. Arnott's, Kellogg's cornflakes, uh, where you've got lots of input costs, which include grains and sort of you know those types of materials. Uh, we've seen inflation in that space, uh, and what I guess what we're doing is putting less in the pack, and therefore charging customers essentially the same. I was um, on the Reddit community of shrinkflation today because there's a Reddit community about everything and it seems like it's rife and it's not just food products. People were talking about there's not as many tissues in tissue boxes anymore, um, smaller lip balm tubes and also sauce bottles that aren't filled to the top. Has this been happening for a long time and we just haven't really realised until recently? Listen, it really has. Um, you know, I remember speaking about um, shrinkflation when it happened with a range of cereals back around about 2012, 2013. So it's certainly been around at least a decade, if not longer. And probably other examples would be maybe your favourite pizza, your pizza that you normally order on a Friday night for the family. Suddenly the pizza's gotten smaller or the burger's gotten smaller, um, you know. So there's lots of examples where the food has actually gotten uh, smaller. What's really interesting, though, is that, you know, people say that they really hate it, but what our studies have shown is actually they prefer it. They would rather pay less to get the same than pay more uh, to, you know, to get the same. I was, I was going to ask about that. Is that the marketing psychology behind it, that we'd rather have, we wouldn't notice smaller things, but we'd notice if all the prices went up? Yeah, loss aversion. So, so we, we, we would rather give away a little bit of content. So we are talking about maybe 20 grams here or 25 grams here. It's not a lot of content that we're giving away as long as we can pay the same. But as soon as we have to pay more, uh, that's a loss aversion. We don't like paying more, particularly for the same. Uh, and, of course, we have one way to fight inflation is to accept a little bit less and pay the same rather than you know buying the same groceries you would normally buy but now paying 5 6 or even 8% more. Do brands also drop the prices to match um, the smaller products or is it, are they doing the double squeeze of also increasing prices and reducing the size? Yeah, well, listen, it's different. So we ran a couple of studies. We, we looked at all different sort of uh, ways we can move the, the product uh, size and price. Naturally, when we uh, put the price up, people didn't like buying it, and that was obviously uh, quite reasonable. When we reduced the pack size and increased the price, we had a, a double crack at it, uh, people really hated it and stopped buying the product. When we simply just reduce the pack size, 
uh, but left the price the same. People actually preferred it and actually continued to buy it, in fact, bought more of it. And then in our final experiment, what we did is we reduced the pack size by a certain proportion and did a little bit of a price reduction as well, but not to the same extent as the pack and contents reduction. But people are very drawn to price. So as soon as they saw an incre- a decrease in price, 38% increase in sales on that particular range of products. So we are very, very conditioned to look at price and not pack size. So if you want to uh, keep an eye out for shrinkflation in your local supermarket, have a look at the, uh, the unit price. It's usually a good sign. People are outraged about it on the text line. People are like, this shit is real. Big Macs used to be twice the size than they are today. And somebody <laughs> said, shrinkflation, there's no fun in fun-sized chocolates anymore. Just lastly, um, we're obviously clearly outraged about it, but is this fair? Because clearly the costs that go into making these products are also going up. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, a really good way to think about it is, you know, if, if you're in your apartment right now, or in your home, your electricity bills just turned up. It's more expensive this quarter than it was last quarter. Your rates are going up. Your body corporate's going up. Your rent's going up. Petrol's going up. And, and just imagine being a small manufacturer trying to produce product with all those costs, input costs coming in. You're going, well, what do I do? Do I pass on those costs to the retailer who passes them on to the customer, the retail price hike? Or do I just put a little bit less in the container or the pack and charge the same uh, and what we're finding is that's probably the only way to, to deal with this you know, incredibly a range of uh, food price inflation that we're getting to. Gary, that's all we've got time for. But thank you so much for coming on and confirming. Um, I think some people feel like, it seems like on the text line, people feel a bit like they're going crazy and think they've changed, not the product. So thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. On Triple J. That's all we had time for. Thanks for sticking around on the Hack Podcast. I'll be with you all this week while Dave recovers from COVID. So catch you tomorrow.